Pastor Jim always makes me a little nervous <laughs> with what he's going to say or what he's going to call me. Um, ha- happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Now let's move on to Christmas. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I love the Thanksgiving holiday. And, um, you know, I always think we skip by it too fast. So in my house, I do not decorate for Christmas until the day after Thanksgiving or this weekend. And typically on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we go to get our Christmas tree. And we're, we're pretty traditional. We go to the Christmas tree farm and we cut one down. But this year, for the first time in my adult life, my house was decorated for Christmas before Thanksgiving because my family came into town um, and we actually celebrated our Christmas this weekend. Um, So it was was a lot of fun. They were here at first service and I was so, so glad to have them. Um, But for me, it's a little weird to have Christmas up already, um, but it's also kind of exciting. Um, Like Pastor Jim said, my name is Nikki. I typically serve as the communications and young adults director around here. But every once in a while, um, I get the opportunity to do some teaching, and I am incredibly thankful for that. Um, It's one of the things that, you know, as I was thinking through this Thanksgiving, what I'm thankful for, it's one of the things that came to mind. And I am incredibly thankful to work for a team and a staff that encourages this, that looks at what um, we're interested in, the things we want to try, the things we want to do, and encourages us and gives us the opportunity to do that. Um, And so I just want to thank Pastor Tim and Pastor Frank and our board for just allowing that to happen. That's that's a really cool thing, Um, and I am grateful. So if you're joining us today for the first time here or online, um, we're glad you're here. Pastor Tim will be back with us next week, but I get the awesome opportunity to kick off our Advent series. And if you're a regular around here, you know that Advent conspiracy is kind of one of our favorite holiday traditions. We don't do a lot of traditions around here. We don't hold tight to a lot of things. But this is one of the things that we love around Grace Point. We take four, the four weeks of Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, to try and flip Christmas right side up. Because if you look around, Christmas has gotten a little bit out of control, right? It's estimated this year that the average consumer will spend $997.73 on Christmas. That's $3 less than the average weekly income. That means at Christmas time, we're spending entire week's income on Christmas alone. And in the U.S., our spending has steadily increased for the past 20 years. The only exception to that was 2008 and 2009, which was the Great Recession. Um, But what we're spending this year, or what we're expected to spend this year, is more than double what we spent in 2002. It just keeps growing. It keeps getting more and more expensive. But it's not just our spending that's upside down at Christmas. Do you ever feel like basically between Halloween and New Year, you don't have a spare hour? No matter what you do, you are busy. You are running to and fro. I actually um, Facebook messaged one of our local dance studios in town, and I said, how many hours do you put into the Nutcracker every year? And she messaged me back and she said, I cannot give you an accurate answer. She said, no matter what hour, no, no, back up, 
No matter what number I tell you, it will not be correct. So we talked back and forth a little bit, and I said we kind of came to the to the agreement that I would ask, how many hours does the main core spend preparing um, the dance for the Nutcracker? And she told me the main core, so the the main ballet dancers, these aren't the little kids, these are the, the main ones, spend about 40 hours. And uh, my sister was in first service and she was in the Nutcracker for several years and she goes, that is not correct. That's a low estimate. <laughs> um, but they spend about 40 extra hours, extra hours, that's on top of their regular dance classes, preparing for the Nutcracker. That does not include the time taken to do the choreography, the set design, the costuming. It doesn't include the actual performance days. And then you add in, so if you're a dance mom and dad, you're driving your kids to extra practices, extra rehearsals, and you know that you also have to help with the fundraising, the costuming, the choreography, because that's what's expected of you, right? And then you add in holiday parties, work get-togethers, family get-togethers, shopping for those last-minute gifts, which on average, women spend about 20 hours doing and men only spend about 10. Now you know why women are better gift givers, right? So we're overspending, we're overextending ourselves. And if those two things aren't stressful enough, in 2017, the Pew Research Center did a study and they found that 46% of Americans or that only 46% of Americans celebrate Christmas primarily as a religious holiday. That's less than half. Less than half of Americans recognize Christmas as a religious holiday. Even more frightening than that, one in five Americans did not believe that any part of the nativity story is true. 20% of Americans do not believe any part of the foundational story of why we celebrate Christmas. There wasn't really any more recent data. Like I said, that was five years old. But if you think about where our world has gone in the last five years and what's been happening, I don't really believe that those numbers are any better. I don't feel like that they've improved. So if we're anything like the average American, we're overspending, we're overcommitted, and our focus is on anything but Jesus during the holiday season. So what are we really celebrating? Is this really a joyful time of year? Doesn't really feel like it. But as followers of Jesus, we are not average Americans. If, you're follow, if you are a follower of Jesus, your primary identity is in Christ. And Pastor Mark talked about that for three weeks earlier this month. And if you haven't had a chance to hear those, go back and listen, they were great messages. Um, but that's what Advent conspiracy is about, right? It's about being in Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, that's okay. We're glad you're here. Thanks for being here. Um, but you can sit back over the next couple of weeks and listen, enjoy the morning, and take it as advice. But um, for followers of Jesus, this series is a wake-up call. It's an opportunity for us to change our thinking, this four-week series celebrates a most wondrous, glorious moment, a point of time in history when God became God with us, when he entered our world. 
um, when he was born as a human, when he became deity in the flesh. It's the beginning of the story of when he died and rose from the grave. And that is the greatest story that's ever been told. And it changes everything, including the way we celebrate Christmas. So over the next four weeks, we're going to talk and look at what it means. Uh-oh. I messed that up. Sorry, guys. Um, what it means to worship fully, spend less, give more, and love all. And the really cool thing about this series is it's not just a Grace Point series. This series actually um, is a conspiracy, and it began in 2006 with several other churches, um, and then Grace Point jumped on board in 2010. And since then, we've been able to give away thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. We have built water wells in Sierra Leone. We funded a dental clinic in Rwanda. We've supported missionaries on five different continents. We purchased a van for The Bridge, which is a, an organization here in Topeka. We've supported a, lots of other organizations here in our community. And we're going to announce another really exciting project a little bit later in the series. Pastor Tim gets uh, that joy. So today and over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to spend a little bit less, to give a little bit more, um, to, to give more time, more energy, more moments, more life, more light to those around us. And when we do that, when we change the way we spend and the cha change the way we live and the way we give, we can love all and change the world that way. Now, those are all practical things, right? Spend less, give more, love others. Um, but if our hearts are not in the right place, if, if we aren't worshiping fully, which is what we're gonna talk about today, those just become another check mark on the ever-growing to-do list. And they don't really change us, and they don't really change the world around us. So we're starting with worship fully. And this is kind of foundational, uh, to where we're going for the rest of the series. So I better not mess it up. Um, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. But these messages do kind of build on each other. So if you miss a week, if you're doing a holiday party or you're with your family, I encourage you to go back and listen um, and, and catch up. You can do that on our website. You can do it on our Facebook page, our YouTube channel. There's lots of different ways. You can call me and I'll send you the link if you need to. Um, because we really want you to hear these messages over the next four weeks. Okay, worship fully. What does that even mean? Well, let's start with a simple definition. Worship actually comes from two old English words, worth and ship. Worth is exactly what it sounds like, worth, value, correct? And ship means having the quality of. So when we worship, when we make that a verb, it means declaring that something has value or that has the quality of worth. Another way to say this is to testify to something's worth. Okay, show of hands, has anybody served on a jury? I have a few of you. Um, I actually am one of those people that gets kind of excited when I get my jury card, <laughs> my jury duty card, and I know that makes me the odd one out, but I really enjoy it. It's a fascinating process. But part of your job when you're on the jury is to determine the veracity or the truthfulness of the testimony. 
right? And sometimes that's really easy because you believe the person that's sitting there or, or the evidence points to what that person is testifying to. But sometimes it's more difficult and there's doubt and there's confusion. But testimony is evidence or proof of something provided by the existence or appearance of something. So that can be verbal testimony. It can be what you say. It can be physical testimony like, or physical evidence like receipts, video footage, um, you know, the rope in the conservatory, you know, if you're any clue players, right? But testimony can also be a lifestyle. Our lives can be a testimony to what we declare as worthy. Okay, I'm gonna give you a really, really practical example. Think with me for a moment. Do you know anyone who is a huge sports fan? First service, Pastor Frank was sitting right up here. Um, Maybe they wear their team's favorite colors. Maybe their office is decorated in the team colors or in memorabilia. Maybe they have the team flag flying from their car. Maybe they have a man cave in their home completely decked out in cowboy stuff, right? Right, their life testifies to the belief that their team is worthy of praise. Now, I'm giving Pastor Frank a little bit of a hard time, right? But it doesn't take very long when you talk to him. The first time you meet him, you find out he's a Cowboys fan, right? It doesn't take very long when you talk to him that, he, that you realize he believes the Cowboys franchise is worth his time on Sundays, the energy he spends cheering them on, and the money he spends on all of his regalia. Now, I can tease Pastor Frank because it also doesn't take very long when you talk to him to realize that he loves the Lord and he loves his wife and kids and his priorities are in the right order, usually. And some people would say that my life is a testimony to my belief that the Jayhawks have value. Maybe not after this weekend, um, but you know, I have their banner in my office. I have an alumni tag on my car. I'm teaching my two-year-old to wave the wheat, right? Um, I spent a lot of money getting part of my education there. People would say that your life, my life, testifies to my belief that the Jayhawks have value. But today, I want to look at one woman whose life was a testimony to the worthiness of God whose life embodied worshiping fully. But before we get to her, I want to talk about context a little bit first, because it's important. God had made a covenant with his chosen people, the Jews, and he had made promises to them that they would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and that um, he would work through them to bless all nations. And throughout history, God um, was with his people and then there were time periods when he was apart from them. and, And we see this all through the Old Testament. And then we come to this point in history, um, the Christmas story. And at this point, the Jews have not heard from God in more than 400 years. There was an incredible gap of silence. We get kind of nervous when there's five or 10 seconds of silence in church, right? Like, did she forget where she was going? Is she, she okay? Is she gonna fall off that stool, right? You, you get nervous. Can you imagine 400 years of silence from God? They had been promised a Messiah, a king, someone that would rule forever. And yet 
there was nothing for four hundred years. And I imagine those teachings were starting to become kind of old, starting to kind of become um, myth. That can't really be real. Why haven't we heard from him? Why haven't we heard from God yet? They were waiting, to put it in perspective, they were waiting to hear from God longer than the United States has been a country. It's a long time, almost double how long the United States has been a country. And they were longing for something different. And then to make matters worse, they were under the Roman Empire rule. And Rome ruled by power and fear and might. And there was great division. Um, Roman citizens had a higher class than the others. Yet, it was into this chaos, into this darkness, that God decided to speak. And he spoke through a little baby, baby Jesus. But he sent that baby to a young girl. Mary was most likely a young teenager. Um, she was most likely poor. She lived in a rural uh, town, Nazareth. Um, and she was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, this pledge is a little different than we understand engagement today, right? They were going to be married, but there had already been a contractual agreement between Mary's family and Joseph's family. She was already signed over to him. And that came with some social um, status and some financial benefit. And there, there was a lot of things that went into this contract. But Mary was contracted to become part of Joseph's family. As a young woman, um, a young Jewish woman under Roman rule, Mary had, did not have rights like we understand them today. She was fully at the mercy of the men in her life. And at this point, she's kind of in a weird spot between um, being under her father's household and being under Joseph's household. She was kind of in the middle. And one day, Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, comes to her and tells her she's going to have a baby. Um, this is gonna be in Luke 1, starting in verse 28. If you wanna follow on your mobile device or uh, there's a Bible in front of you, we would love to have you follow along. These verses are also gonna be on the screen. But the angel went to her and said, "'Greetings, you who are highly favored. "'The Lord is with you.'" All right, Mary's never been highly favored in anything. She's a poor, young Jewish girl. She's not valued in society. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Stop for a moment. That is a lot of information to take in. An angel appears to this young lady, tells her she's going to be pregnant, and not only that, you poor, know-nothing girl in the eyes of all society, you are going to give birth to a king. And not just any king, you're going to give birth to the king who's going to reign on David's throne and his reign will be eternal. Mary is being told that she is going to be a part of fulfilling prophecy. And I'm sure some of those old stories and those things that she maybe had begun to thought of as myth began to form in the back of her head. And, and could this be what her people had been waiting for? Could this be the Messiah, the coming king? 
but I chuckle at what happens next because it's like her brain can't really process everything that's going on. Um, she, can't, she doesn't understand everything the angel tells her because look at what she says. She says, how will this be, Mary said, asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. And it strikes me funny. I giggle every time I read it because out of all of those things that the angel tells her, and you have to remember, Mary's right in the middle of a miracle, right? Like an angel is talking to her and all she can think about are her physical circumstances. Like, I can't have a baby. I'm, I've never done the thing you have to do to have a baby. How is this possible? But as I was thinking about this over the last couple of weeks and I was mulling it over and studying this, it struck me how similar we are to Mary. God promises us something God calls us to something, but we forget the miraculous for the mundane. And it sounds something like this. God, I can't tell my coworkers about you. I could lose my job. God, I can't give to that organization, that missionary, that needy family, because then I won't be able to buy my kids Christmas presents. God, I can't do that thing because I have 20 other things on my to-do list and I won't be able to get them all done. God, I can't invite those people over to my house because my house is too small or it's not clean enough or my house isn't decorated like the Pioneer Woman or uh, Chip and Joanna. I struggle with that one, right? God, I can't be your hands and feet because my hands and feet are too busy doing something else. Yikes, right? We're just like Mary. Mary says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. But even in that moment, God was gracious to her. And the angel tells her that the baby will be conceived of the Holy Spirit and that the baby will be the son of God. And I love Mary's response. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may it be to me as you have said. In an instant, Mary's life changed. We don't really know um, what Mary was thinking, but at that moment, she made a decision that from that point forward, her life would always declare and testify to the worthiness of God. I kind of wonder if she struggled with what Joseph would think or what her parents would say to her um, or what her community would do to her. We don't really know what she thought because the text doesn't tell us. But we do know, I believe, that she knew what she was agreeing to was life-changing because the text says a little bit later that Joseph decided to divorce her or to break their, con their contract, which is actually one of the nicest things he could have done because he could have chosen to have her stoned for infidelity. Mary knew that agreeing to what God was asking of her was life-altering. But she also believed in God's power and his faithfulness to the Jewish people. And she knew that anything she would face would be worth it for what God was going to do for her. This was going to be the Messiah. This is what she had been waiting for, what her people had been waiting for for years and years and years. And Mary recognized that whatever she was giving up was of lesser value than what God was going to be doing and, than what she, and what she was going to be worshiping. So I go back. What lesser things are we holding on to? What lesser things are we holding on to that if we let go of might be painful 
It might be hard. It might make us weird to those around us. It may even be putting our life on the line. But by letting go of them, we can declare God's worth. And that would be so much more. What are we holding on to? Back to Mary. Mary agrees. She, she gives her life over to the purpose of God. And God does something really incredible. In his goodness and in his faithfulness, he, he shows up to her again in, in, a, in a kind of a unique way. Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's also pregnant, with who we'll find out later becomes John the Baptist. And look at what happens. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. Skip down to verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Through Elizabeth, God confirmed the assignment he had given Mary and he affirmed her decision to follow him. And in this moment of affirmation, Mary becomes overwhelmed by God's goodness and she bursts out into song. Thanksgiving just overflows out of her life. And look at what she says. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. Some translations say magnify the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Look closely at Mary's response. Mary recognizes the work God is doing in her and how it will change her life. She recognizes that she will be called blessed, that there is blessing in this for her, but not because of the work she has done. It's only because of the work God is doing in her life. And so she turns the praise right back to him. She bursts into song and she praises God for what he's done for her, what he's done for the generations before her, and what he's doing for the generations to come. Mary's heart was so full at God's provision that it overflowed from her lips and her life. You see, from the moment Mary encountered Gabriel, from that moment on, her life was a testimony to the worthiness of God. Mary's life was a life full of worship. But you know what? It wasn't an easy life. In fact, it was a very difficult life. She gave birth to a baby in a stinky barn, a stinky manger. Her baby fell into the hands, the rough carpenter's hands of Joseph, not a midwife, not someone who was trained to help deliver a baby, but a man who until that point had never seen her. She then had to run for her life and escaped the deadly power of Herod, she watched her son grow up and go into ministry and be both loved and hated. And she watched him be crucified on a cross, the death of a criminal, which she knew he was not. Mary lived one of the hardest lives you can live as a mother. She outlived her son. And that's hard. But Mary's life never stopped testifying to God's goodness, his faithfulness, and his provision. And that's an example to us. 
as we enter this um, time of Advent, this time, this season of waiting and preparation, it's a time where we reprioritize our lives. We start to shift focus and we get to celebrate. This is a time of, of praise and worship for Jesus's first coming because we've seen it. We know in that beautiful nativity scene but it's also a time of worship of anticipation, knowing that Jesus is coming again. Advent is a time where we can use our lives to testify to what we believe God is still doing right here, right now. It's a time for our lives to testify, to declare the worthiness that this is good news of great joy for all people yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I get, we, I get it. You're saying, Nikki, we do not have an angel of the Lord coming down, proclaiming miraculous things to us. I understand that. But we have something Mary did not. You see, Mary had a handful of prophecies in what the angel said to her. But we have 2,000 years of history, a 2,000-year vantage point that Mary didn't have. You see, we've, we've heard those prophecies, some of which have already been fulfilled, We've seen Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and we have seen the incredible, impossible spread of the gospel. We have seen what God has said he was going to do come to fruition. But I understand it's easy to get caught up in those 40 hours of dance practice, in the 20 hours of Christmas shopping, Spending a week's income. It's so easy to get caught up in it. I do it too. It's easy to muddle through the mundane, but all of those things are distractions. So as we're, as we're challenged, as we're distracted over the next um, several weeks, I wanna give us a focal point. What can we come back to? What can we think on? What can we meditate on to help us have a heart like Mary, to help us adjust And so I want to actually go back and look at one of the prophecies of Jesus' birth. And this is in Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You and me, we're part of those people. right? We're living in this prophecy because darkness hasn't been eradicated from our earth. I recognize that. I recognize that some of you are walking in a time of darkness. Some of you are deep in the middle of painful and hard things, and it is hard to see the light, but a light has dawned. Now, these next verses are really familiar, and I want to encourage you, don't skip ahead. Sit in them, mull in them, let them sweep over you. Listen to these as if they're the first time you're hearing them. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We read this at Christmas time a lot as a prophecy of Jesus's birth, but this is an ongoing prophecy. Do you realize that we're living in the middle of this present tense prophecy? 
Jesus is currently reigning on David's throne. He's currently establishing his kingdom. He's currently upholding it with justice and righteousness right now. And of his government, there will be no end of peace. Of peace. As followers of Jesus, this is crucial to what we believe. We believe in a coming government of peace and we believe in a current government of peace. And we believe that the Lord Almighty will accomplish it because he's accomplished the things he said he would in the past and he's accomplishing the things he said he would now. I love how the NLT phrases that last sentence. It says, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. The passion, God's passion will make this happen. And there's a little bit of juxtaposition here and I love it. I think it's a really cool literary device. The Lord of heavenly armies the greatest army ever in existence, the most powerful being in all existence is bringing a government of peace. And it's happening right now. Man, if you believe that, it should change how we live, how we give, how we spend, how we love. But it's so easy to live as if peace isn't possible. It's easy to get caught up in the chaos. We're running to and fro, spending obscene amounts of money on gifts that get returned or thrown away. We're focused on cookies and trees and the perfect gift giving and everything. But Jesus, man, what would it look like if we were a people who lived in the light? As a people who lived under rule of peace and justice. How would our lives look different? What would our lives be giving a testimony to? You see, worship isn't just something we do on Sunday mornings. It's not just what happens when the music plays. Worship is a lifestyle and we cultivate and grow it. But here's the tricky thing. We all worship something, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, your life right now is testifying to something. As followers of Jesus, if we are not actively engaged in the worship of our king, we'll begin to passively worship lesser things. If we aren't actively testifying to God's worth, we'll begin to testify to the worth of something else. Because you see, how we spend our time, our money, our energy, our lives, testifies to what we worship or what we declare as worthy. And when anything other than wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, gets the priority of our time, our money, and our energy, then we're testifying that that thing has greater value. We're substituting the magnificent for the mundane. We're making idols out of the insignificant. And when anything, than, when anything other than God receives the primary place of worship in our lives, it's idolatry. And we don't like to talk about sin at Christmas, right? Christmas is the season of great joy and happy feelings and love, right? And this is when Jesus came, we don't talk about his sacrifice, right? We don't talk about Easter at Christmas. But Jesus came because of that sin in our lives, because of that idolatry in our lives. The reality is during Christmas, during Advent, when we should have a heart like Mary a heart fully surrendered to God, a heart overflowing with peace and justice and righteousness, a heart that declares God's worth and is the light and the life to the world around us. It's 
easy and it's more common to have a heart of chaos and a heart of darkness. So I want to encourage you this week, ask yourself, what is my life testifying to? Where is my time, my money, my energy going? What is the primary place of worship in my life? What does my life testify to? And if you're one of those people that likes really difficult application or really challenging application, ask your friends and family, what does my life testify to? If you could say my life was a testimony of something, what would it be? And as you're mulling that over, as you're pondering Isaiah 9, as you're thinking about Mary this week, if the answer to those questions is anything other than mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace, then take some time this week to repent, to turn away, to refocus your life, to turn your heart and to live a life that's worshiping fully. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, thank you um, for this season. Thank you for this time of preparation as, as we prepare our hearts and our minds um, to celebrate your first coming, but also to anticipate and wait on your second coming. God, as we go this week, I just ask that you focus our hearts and our minds on you. Use our lives as a testimony to your goodness, your faithfulness, your peace, your righteousness, your justice. Help us to be your hands and feet and remind us in a world of darkness and chaos, we are a people walking as if a light has dawned. God, you are good and your name is powerful and mighty. And so in the name of Jesus, we ask all of these things. Amen. All right, we'll see you back next week.